This morning we are in a continued study by way of introduction. We're in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter uh, really, and chapters 8 through uh, 1 through chapter 11, verse 1, all deal with the same subject, and that subject really is freedom in Christ. So if this is the first time that you are with us this morning, you may feel like you're coming in a little bit uninformed on some of the things we've discussed in the past, but hopefully there will be enough in what we say today for you to put that all together as we look at this first 18 verses of chapter 9. And also, as I'm thinking about it, a special thank you to Jim Ferguson for bringing the word to you in my absence last week, and to Mike Jones and Amy Sandroff for leading the musical worship while Alex was out playing in the woods along with me as we were at our annual men's retreat with a number of other men having a great time out there and being refreshed at Stanton River State Park in Scottsburg, Virginia. But because we missed a week, I'd like to introduce the subject by giving you a couple of thoughts, if you will. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ wants the church to be one. Uh, we know that our Lord desires unity in his church. Uh, we uh, lack unity, uh, and of course, uh, the church in general has lacked unity off and on, but the lack of unity here uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians is a major emphasis for Paul. Paul said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, be diligent to pursue uh, and preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just also as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And of course, Paul is just reemphasizing something he visited over and over again. Uh, that's the importance of unity. There's to be unity in the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the early verses, where he's laying a foundation for the understanding of spiritual gifts, uh, Paul uses the human body as an illustration for unity. He shows that mutual ministry within the body of Christ, which we all play a part, is really a beautiful kind of unity, a very important aspect for the Christian church. And Paul keeps coming back to it, to this idea of unity, this understanding of unity, this requirement for unity in these two letters that we have from Paul to the church in Corinth, because the lack of unity was really a chronic problem amongst the church there, and some of those problems show up in the modern church as well. There were and are numerous reasons for discord among believers. There were and are several reasons for disunity, several reasons for broken fellowship or fractured fellowship, if you will, uh, that communion was or is interrupted and corrupted and broken and violated. And, and so the oneness that the Lord designed and intended for his church is really absence from the church there and sometimes absent from the church in the modern world too. And one reason we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this, he says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, are you not walking as mere men? That, of course, is opposed to being spiritual or walking in the Spirit or being led by the Spirit. Paul says you're operating in the flesh, and, and we know this, Paul says, because you have jealousy and strife in your midst. And that, of course, wars against unity. So reason number one for disunity, you can find it in your notes, they had their favorites, they had their favoritism, they had their factions, they had their opinions, they had their preferences, and it was a personality cult, and all that creates discord, not unity. And so Paul had to talk about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul revisits the topic again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6. He says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. He's just so incredulous that that's happening. Verse 7, he says, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another, why not rather be wronged, why not rather be defrauded? 
On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud and you do this even to your brethren. So bad testimony in the world and right inside the church, he said. And so disunity reason number two had to do with conflict resolution. Discord comes into the church when believers take each other to court. Instead of picking someone spiritual, Paul says in this passage, to decide between them, they take the argument before non-believers. And so that causes disunity in the church. It's not what the Lord wanted there. Paul knew that, so he addresses it. Peter knew how to solve uh, the whole conflict resolution problem. 1 Peter 4, 8, one that I read to you often. Verse 8 says, Peter says to the church, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why, Peter? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And we've learned this over and over again, but the bottom line is believers don't always have to chase everything down. Believers don't always have to uh, seek apologies if they feel they've been wronged. Uh, one of the things you can do is let love cover a multitude of sins. So Peter knew, and Peter was teaching the church. Paul knew and just was so uh, incensed that this was how the church was in Corinth. And so was conflict problems, disunity problems. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, Actually then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defeated? Same idea. Why not rather just take the wrong? Why not rather just absorb it? Why not just rather ignore it? Uh, but all that had escaped the believers in Corinth. It escapes believers now sometimes, so disruption of unity then reigns. Number three, 1 Corinthians 11. I won't go to all these because some of these we look at regularly. This is one of them. 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's table, they had disunity created by gluttony and greed. They were coming to fellowship dinners and everyone's serving themselves first and eating up everything before other people would get there and eating up the communion uh, uh, elements and all of that was all part of what was going on inside a service. So Paul corrects that attitude, tells them what he received from the Lord to uh, correct all of that. 1 Corinthians 14, again, they would come together for corporate worship and a bunch of different people wanted to speak and everybody wanted to prophesy, everybody had something they needed to say, everybody standing up talking all the time, it was a mess. And so disunity number four in, in Corinth that Paul has to deal with had to do with uh, disunity created by pride. And so Paul gives some rules for corporate worship and he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And that describes for them what it's supposed to look like when they come together in fellowship. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 20, we find another thing that disrupts the unity of the church. Uh, Paul says, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be, uh, or find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. In other words, I won't find what I want to find when I come to you and you're not going to find me the way you thought you'd find me either. And he goes on to say that perhaps there will be strife and jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Now, all those, of course, as Paul talks about them to the church, are symptoms of disunity. Every one of those is talking about the inability of people to get along with one another. And so uh, Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will hu may humiliate me uh, in front of you. In other words, Paul says, after all the time I spent teaching you, all the time I've spent there being with you, all the, all the teaching done in the letters that I've sent to you, uh, personally and writing to you and all that, that you won't have changed. And that would be very humbling for me. I will have had ineffective ministry, in other words, Paul says, among you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of that, uh, the impurity, immorality, sensuality, which they have practiced. So, number five, for disunity, just from Paul's dealings with the congregation in Corinth, now not going outside of that, if there's to be debate, if there's to be faction, if there's to be dispute of any kind, and envy, strife, impurity, immorality, conflict, or any combination of all of that stuff, it'll be, Paul says, because there's sin there in Corinth, and Paul says, you haven't repented. And so, unrepentant sinfulness creates discord inside the church, and all those things, then, 
warred against unity in the Corinthian church. And then there's another one that we skipped over, but that transitions us into our teaching time today, and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it is freedom that's misused. That's the topic Paul's talking about now. Freedom that's misused, but that creates a disunity inside the church. So number six, when believers misuse their liberty, when believers take their liberty and, and don't take into account what everybody else may think about it or how it may affect someone, it's going to cause problems. It's going to cause discord. It's going to cause disunity inside the church. This is what we went into into detail last time. And we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, where Paul makes the case, makes some illustrations using himself, and makes some illustrations using Israel, and then wraps the whole thing up and teaches them what needs to be done. But just as another illustration, uh, Galatians 5.13, I love this, because Paul, has, as he worked through Galatians, uh, in chapter 3, chapter 4, really the beginning of chapter 5, the topic of liberty was his topic. And so he spent all that time discussing their liberty, how he wants them to show them what their liberty really does not allow. I mean, you're free and so forth and so on, but here's what your liber where your liberty ends. He says in verse 13, he says this in chapter 5, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. So that is true about you. You were called out of bondage into freedom, not to legalism, but to freedom in Christ. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care you're not consumed by one another. In other words, you've, you're given liberty, but not so that you can run out and in your flesh do whatever your liberty allows, no matter how it affects someone else. Because then Paul draws that illustration therein about the whole law is fulfilled and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So rather, your liberty is to be limited by what? The same thing he said in 1 Corinthians 8. Your liberty is to be limited by love. And then he gives a very graphic illustration. He says, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care you're not consumed by one another. In other words, Paul says, if you act like a bunch of wild animals going around, literally, the Greek is saying this, biting each other and gulping each other down. If you go around devouring each other, how? By really misusing your liberty, doing what you want, not concerned about what other people are thinking about it, how it affects someone else or whatever. All you're going to do is destroy the church. Yes, we have liberty, but it's limited by love. Now, the background then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 11 has to do with things that the Bible does not prohibit. Okay? And we've talked about that. There are just some things that aren't good or bad. They're just gray area things. And the believer who is not trying to merit his righteousness by legalism has liberty in that gray area to do whatever he wants technically. And we got into some of those things, but really it varies from time period to time period and life to life. And your particular life situation and what you are doing in your life at this particular time uh, will have some questions related to Christian liberty and gray areas. And it changes and perhaps the decisions you make now as it affects those people who are around you may be different than the decisions you can make later. And sometimes the decisions you make will limit your freedom from that point on. It'll be a conviction you have because of certain reasons. But these are things that the Bible neither prohibits uh, nor tells you to do. It's those gray areas that land in between. So, in particular in Corinth, uh, although it's not the, uh, the sum of all this liberty, but in particular in Corinth, it had to do with meat offered to idols. The Corinthians were saying, hey, you know, the meat we buy at the butcher shop, uh, some of that's been offered to an idol before, and so it gets here, and, and then we eat it. 
And so some of the Corinthians would say, eat up, what's the difference? I mean, an idol is nothing anyway. Um, nobody's home there. It's just a big statue or it's just a thought about something that doesn't exist or the festival is in the name of or in honor of a god or goddess that doesn't exist. So what's the difference? We're going to go and we're going to eat, okay? God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about what you eat. But some of the weaker Corinthians then would, couldn't accept that because they'd just been saved out of idolatry. So to them, it was desecrated meat. It was impossible for them to eat that at that point. Uh, or the world may look at that liberty that they were enjoying and say, hey, why are you doing that? I mean, Christians don't do that. And so non-believers would be looking at these Christian believers who had liberty, but the world is saying, hey, that's not what Christians do. And so, once again, somebody else's uh, restriction is impeding on, or should be impeding on, the liberty that's there. So whether they realize it or not, the free believer has created a roadblock to the gospel. And so... Uh, now, the strong Christian had the right to do it, technically. I mean, it fell inside that gray area, but Paul says, you ought to limit yourself by love for that weaker brother. And wait, as we looked at this before, and we'll go back into all of this, wait till his conscience can allow him to do that and to accept that as something that's allowable in his own life. So we understand then uh, Paul's concerns. If you really want to love the world, if you really want to live, uh, win the world to Jesus, there may be some liberties you're going to have to set aside in order to do that. Because some things that you have the right to say yes to will tear up the road that leads to the gospel. It's going to knock down a bridge that leads to the gospel. And if you want to love your brother and see him grow up, uh, maybe there's some liberties you ought to set aside. Because some of the things that you have the right to say yes to will ruin a brother or sister in Christ. Some of the liberties will wound their conscience and cause them to stumble. We saw that last time. Now, Paul illustrates that principle in chapter 9, and he illustrates it from his own life. And again, we looked at it extensively last time. We won't go through the whole thing again, but he says, let me show you how I had liberty, how I had a right, how I had a privilege to exercise, uh, how I had a freedom, and, but I set it aside for the sake of love. He's going to use himself as an illustration. Because really, as he brings this limit to their liberty in love, you know that there's going to be some criticism. Well, Paul, why is that a big deal? I mean, if they can't handle it and they're not old enough or mature enough in the faith, why does that impinge on me? So Paul's going to use some illustrations, perhaps, that they're not aware of, things, situations from his own life that are going to illustrate why this is important and why he understands how limiting your liberty impinges a little bit on your rights and perhaps on your comfort. So, first of all, verses 1 through 14, he's going to do this. He's going to establish the right that he has, and then in verses 15 to 18, he excludes himself from the right. Now you're caught up. That's where we left off. And that's this whole passage, as Paul deals with issue by issue, as he works through uh, these issues inside the Corinthian church. He knows God's concerned about the health of the church, and so Paul directs, Paul's directed by the Holy Spirit to address these issues concerning this church, and they can be uh, curative for the modern church, they can be uh, prophylactic for the modern church, they can just help the modern church avoid all those things, but all that stuff is there for us and for our benefit. Now, to establish his right, and that right was the right to monetary support by the church, so I'm going to sum this up for you, and then we're going to read the passage, okay? He gave them really eight examples from which came five principles that gave him every right to be supported. And it's an absolutely conclusive argument. When he finishes, it is established conclusively that this is the case and this is how it should be. And from Paul's example, the church today really has a clear and solid guideline on the Lord's mind in that issue. And we won't go back over all that stuff because that was very clear last time we looked at it. But that's where we are as we come up to this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. So I want you to look there, if you would, your copy of God's Word. We'll read all the way through verse 18. This is our last look at this section of the Word of God. We'll move on, Lord willing, 
next week and look at the second example from Paul's life. But let's look at it again this morning and we'll finish up the last four verses at the end that we were able to hold off from last time. Now, so verse one, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the chair in front of you, around you somewhere, or just read from your copy and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together, okay? First Corinthians chapter nine, verse one. Am I not free, Paul says? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 2, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. So you can see there's some contention there. You can see there's something going on there that uh, is creating some tension between Paul and the church. Verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And here's the first example. Who at any time, verse 7, serves as a soldier at his own expense? Second example, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Third example, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Verse 8, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Here's our fourth example. Or does not the law also say these things? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Here's example number five. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and then the next one, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? That's his seventh example. Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 13 in our eighth example, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food for the of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar, verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that they will be done so in my case, for it would be, would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Stop right there. Now, last time we finished uh, through verse 15, uh, Paul says, I have the right, the freedom to expect the Corinthian church to support me because principle number one, because we saw all the examples now, principle number one, it's the usual custom. Principle number two, God's concerned about those who lead the church. Principle three, we saw the minister has the right and should be able to anticipate that out of labor comes reward. Principle number four, we saw the believers are supposed to be marked by this trait, to be generous. And principle number five, it's always been God's way that those who do the work of the ministry are supported by the ministry. So Paul gives them reasons from which we easily extract principles, then they become a very solid case then for Paul to say, I had the right to expect this from you. Now, let's review the last part of verse 12 because then we get into some language that's going to carry us right into the end of the verse, okay? Verse 12 says this, Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. 
Very important principle, Paul says, I'm refusing to take my right to do this because I don't want to cause a hindrance. Now look at the last uh, first part of verse 15. But I have used none of these things. So Paul says, I gave you eight reasons from which we came five principles, but I haven't used any of them. That's what he means. I've used none of these things. I never took anything from you, Paul says, even though I had the right, I had the freedom to do it. And he just kind of reiterates this illustration of the freedom to limit your freedom. Paul says, don't you think I know a little bit about what I'm asking you to do in relation to eating and drinking? Uh, a little bit about what I'm asking you to do in restricting your freedom? He goes, I do. He says, I know a lot more about it perhaps than you do. And it's a lot more personal to me maybe than it is uh, to you. And the reason I'm limited my freedom was because I love you. Paul felt it would be a hindrance. We just saw that, so he didn't take the right that he had. And that, people, is the principle here. As Christians, we have rights, rights that can be defended. I mean, there's a tremendous defense right here for Paul, that he had the right to receive support from the church. But it's right that we equally can set that right aside because of love. Now, just a reminder of the last part of verse 12. It says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He waived his right to support. We endure all things, Paul says. Look, even we bear, that the idea there literally is to bear in silence, bear without complaint. Paul says we endure whatever was deprived, and he had already mentioned some of those things. We do that without comment, Paul says, and it's in the present active indicative. So he's continually enduring throughout his current ministry with them the absence of things that he has the right to and that he no doubt needs. And hindrances is, of course, engopen, the noun engopen. Uh, it's, the, it's a wartime word we looked at last time. Paul says one of the reasons why we do this, I don't want to uh, create a hazard. I don't want to create a breaking up of the road, a breaking up of the path, an impedance that in wartime you would do to keep an enemy from pursuing or keep an enemy from attacking. Paul says, I, you know, you could stop the advance of machinery, stop the advance of supplies by creating obstacles, destroying bridges, blocking or pulling up roads, things like that. Paul uses it here then. And he says this, look, I wouldn't do anything to chop up the highway to tear down the bridge by which the gospel is advancing. So that becomes a very important principle for us as we limit our freedom, because if the world thinks it's wrong or the world thinks we shouldn't do it or that's not what Christians do, it is your job to limit your freedom out of love for them. Why? So that you don't tear up the road or put a block in the road or uh, break down a bridge that would be a path to the gospel. Very important. Paul says, I don't want to do anything to make it difficult for you to accept the gospel. Even though I have the right to your support, I don't want you to think that I'm in this for the money, so I'm going to set this right aside. He was willing to endure anything rather than give those who were questioning him a reason to oppose him or give people a reason not to get saved. And that was a sad place for the Corinthian church to be in. I'm not defending, and I don't want you to think you should be defending the Corinthian church. They were not where they needed to be. Okay, That shouldn't have been an impedance. Because Paul had a very, very secure right to support from the church. But they were in a very, very sad place, a very immature place. Now look at verse 15. That's where we ended last time because it really carries some emphasis, but I've added a lot of stuff in here so you can kind of fill this all in. Paul says this, I've used none of these things. In other words, I've excluded the right even though I established the right. I just gave you the eight uh, reasons why it was okay, uh, five principles that were easily extracted from that. I have all those things. These things is just the things Paul's referring to, those eight examples, those five principles of why the church is to, is to support those who minister to her. And he says, here's an example of somebody who has the right and sets it aside, and it's me, Paul says. Now watch, Paul wants to lay any rest, any accusation of subterfuge. In other words, he's not double speaking here, okay? Uh, and I'm, here's what he says, look at verse 15. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. 
for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make a boast, my boast, an empty one. Now, Paul wants to put the rest in an accusation of saying one thing and meaning another. Okay, he's preaching a message, saying that he doesn't, not going to take support, but really wants them to take the meaning underneath, which is, I really do want support. Because he already has people there who are examining him and, and from whom he has to make a defense. He's already got people accusing him. We went through all those accusations before. I won't go back through them again. But, you know, you're single. Can't you support yourself? You got a good job. Why do we have to be burdened? And all that kind of, kind of stuff, all that kind of nonsense. Okay, I mean, we've got a tight budget. Why should we take, you know, why do we have to cover you two? All of that stuff, okay, that's always the, uh, the, the undercurrent, okay? And so he's always having to, to defend himself from these people, but he wants to make them understand, listen, somebody's going to say, oh, I know why you're writing this, Paul. I mean, you, you know, you're saying, I don't want any money. I don't take any money. I, don't, I have the right to money, of course, and I want to give you eight examples of five principles of why it's, it's, it's right for you to pay. And you're expecting us to say, oh, come on, Paul, please take it. And, and then you'll say, okay, I'll take it. I don't want to make you feel bad. So he, he, he doesn't want them to think that's where he's headed, Okay. So undoubtedly, Paul knows he's going to have people accusing him of that. And, and Paul just says, listen, I'm not seeking support. I haven't changed my approach one bit. I have freedom to limit my freedom, and I've done this on my own. And it's to my own detriment. I've chosen not to require support from you in the past, and that's the way I'm going to keep it in the future. And remember Paul's description of he and perhaps Barnabas, 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 12. Remember when he said, to the present hour, both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed, and we're roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil at working with our own hands. So right up to the present time, Paul says, I'm not asking you to change anything. It's my freedom to do this way, do it this way. I don't want it done any differently. I don't expect it to change. I choose to do it this way. And then we saw some examples out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9 where Paul exercises his freedom to limit his freedom because of a prevailing critical attitude in the church in Corinth. And he just says to them, listen, I robbed other churches to minister to you. Other churches came, Macedonia came, and they provided a bunch of gifts so I could stay here and continue to minister among you. And so things perhaps the church doesn't know, things that perhaps he's never told them. And perhaps because he was silent about it, this is maybe the first time he's bringing it up, but he's using it as an example of, I know what it means to limit my own freedom, and I know what it means to even do it to my own detriment. So Paul makes a very important case here. Now, the last part of verse 15 is the core of the whole thing. It answers the question about Paul's attitude as he dealt with the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 15. But I've used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things, though that will be done in my case. So we understand what he means by that. No doublespeak. Then he says this, for it would be, would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And Paul is just expressing great emotion here in no uncertain terms. He wants them to understand that he isn't telling them this so they'll start to support him. He's made his decision to limit his freedom. And he's just saying in the strongest way he can in the Greek, it's better for me to die than to exercise his right to compensation when he knows there are people in Corinth who are having a problem with all of that. Paul takes that responsibility onto himself. Listen, I'd just rather die than offend somebody who's having a problem. Now, he's not defending that issue with the, with the Corinthian church. He's not saying it's a right problem to have. He's just saying you have it, and so I'm just, I would rather die than just to, to, to cause a problem there amongst you who have the problem, he says. And even though they're wrong, and even though he's given them eight examples of five principles to show it's the right thing to do, to help them grow, to help them become mature, he loves them enough not to let them remain in ignorance in their arrogant attitude, so he gives them this information. He loves them enough not to put a hindrance, though, to the gospel, and he loves them enough to give them, uh, help them see he's given up his right until they grow. And it certainly isn't the standard for the church. 
Uh, he, we saw, in fact, at the end of Paul's ministry, as he passes on uh, to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, the elders who rule well are, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So Paul just has given this last instruction to Timothy. This is what you're going to tell the church. I'm going to be gone, but now the church is mature. This is the, this is the issue. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul wasn't setting a standard of capitulation to the church in 1 Corinthians 9. He was simply saying that it was his right to limit his freedom. And remember, the passage itself is an illustration of the believer's freedom to limit their freedom and what they should be doing then as they look at the freedom they're exercising, as they look around at the, at the young believers in their church, at the immature believers in their church, and at the world as it watches what they're doing. So the reason Paul uses himself as an example and even brings up this issue that really, if you think about it, Paul brings this issue up, it's only going to cause more grief for Paul. And we're going to see that later on. I mean, they're just going to throw that back up in his face, very disrespectful to Paul all the time. So it's his responsibility, though, to teach the church. And so he brings the issues up. He makes it clear that they understand them and then says, but it's my right to exercise this freedom. And that's what I'm going to do because I really love the world and I want to win them to Jesus. And there may be some liberties I'm going to have to set aside, Paul says. And we can say that with Paul because some things that I have the right to say yes to will tear up the road that leads to the gospel and knock down a bridge that leads to the gospel. And I'm going to look around at my brothers and sisters and I'm going to see them and I want them to grow up. And there may be some liberties I'm going to have to set aside because some things I have the right to say yes to are going to ruin a brother or sister in Christ. And that's not a permanent ruin, but a, a derailing, if you will, temporarily, where they just really have a hard time with their walk, perhaps fall back into sin that they had in their life before. Just all the kind of stuff that can corrupt the walk with a believer temporarily. And it's going to, perhaps it will, it will wound their conscience, cause them to stumble a little bit, all those things. So knowing that Christ died for them and brought them into a relationship with himself can motivate me then to give up some freedom and thereby show them love and see them dis disciple to begin to grow. That's Paul saying that to the church. That's the church. That's what he wants the church to say back to him. That's where he wants them to be. Now, let's look at verse 16 through 18, and Lord willing, we're going to finish this all up. Look at verse 16, if you would, with me. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe, to me, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel. Now look back at verse 16. Let's kind of, go, let's kind of break it apart. It's a great passage. It kind of wraps this whole thing up. It gives a wonderful insight into the life of Paul and, and ministers who, who serve uh, in the modern time. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The first thing that perhaps pops out here is the word boasting. I mean, verse 15 says, of course, it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And the first question most people say is, well, isn't boasting a sin? I mean, that's a pride, right? I mean, it's pride and it's a sin. We're not supposed to do it. And, and isn't that how it's supposed to be? What's Paul saying here? Is he saying, I would not, I would not, I'd like now to brag. Is that what he's saying? No. Is he saying, you know, let me toot my own horn here a little bit? Or, or the King James Version, he who tooteth not his own horn, the same goeth untooted. Is that what Paul's saying? No. He's not standing up and saying, okay, now I'm going to brag. The issue really is, boasting can be a sin, but it can also be a righteous act. And we find it all throughout the scriptures, really cast in a very positive way. Just depends on the reason for the boasting. Sometimes, uh, believers are chastened, chastened for boasting in the wrong thing, 
but boasting itself can be a good thing. Let me give you some insight on the word. It's the noun kakema. Scripture is used in a number of different positive ways. It's, to boast really is a, an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. So we understand that. Uh, you're recognizing something exceptionally noteworthy. Uh, perhaps it's in your own life, as Paul is, is pointing this out. Perhaps it's in your ministry, whatever it may be, someone else. Uh, certainly boasting in the Lord, uh, boasting in his power, boasting in the works that he's accomplished. All those kinds of things, especially noteworthy. It becomes part of your phraseology. You may say, I'm boasting in the Lord here because he's accomplished these things on my behalf. So it can be cast very, very, very well, and we'll find this all the way through. What one boasts about, of course, is very important. 2 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says, uh, we are what you boast about just as you are what we boast about. So there's this mutual boasting going on. They think of Paul, he says, uh, and some of them think of him, and they boast about Paul. Paul was here as our pastor 18 months. Paul has this marvelous ministry to the Gentiles. We're boasting of Paul's ability and all that he's done in his writing. And, and of course, he's boasting in some of them because they've grown and they're his mark of apostleship. And he says, listen, this is the, this is the mark that the Lord's at work in the ministry that we're doing and he's raising up these people and this is a marvelous thing there is a right to boast a justification for boasting and paul is doing that here uh, of course it's a basis that there's some pride there okay and so it's not always negative this thing pride the basis for uh, the content of one's feelings uh, of legitimate pride uh, is for uh, looking at something and saying okay i i'm, I'm encouraged by that now I, I want you to know that the words used 11 times in the new testament and five of those times it's translated rejoicing or rejoice and so I think that softens it a little bit for us. I think we're connected to the modern rendition of it where we just watch our, 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 our social icons, you know, and we watch people in Washington and we rec recognize that that's all misdirected and, uh, and it's just kind of focusing on themselves for no good reason. And so, but here in the New Testament, we see it 11 times, five of those times the word rejoicing is translated there. So when Paul says, verse 16, look back there again, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, see, then, uh, you know, I mean, there isn't, much in my ministry, Paul says, that I have anything to do with. I mean, but there's, you know, one thing that I can have some special joy in, and, and that I have chosen to do, and that's the thing is such a cause for rejoicing in me, I'd never give it up. Something I rejoice in. There's, there's a thing that thrills me, Paul says, about my ministry, and I'm never going to give it up. I'd rather die than give up the opportunity to be thrilled in my ministry by this thing. This is the thing that blesses me about my ministry. Well, what is it? What blesses you, Paul? What blesses you so much that you'd rather die than give it up? Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Uh, well, verse 16 tells us that that, uh, what it isn't, okay? Look at verse 16. I seem to be off here a little bit, so just ignore that for a second. Paul says, it isn't the gospel, okay? Because I had nothing to do with that. God gave that to me. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. So I'm not boasting in the gospel. That's God's gospel, okay? The question could be, well, then what about your preaching? Are you going to boast in your preaching? And Paul would say no to that as well. Look at verse 16 again. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Listen, it isn't the ministry of preaching that I'm boasting in, and it isn't the gospel I'm boasting in. Paul could say, really, I had no choice about this ministry of preaching. I mean, you know, I was walking down the road and minding my own business on the way to Damascus, and the next thing I know, the very next day, I'm in the ministry. I mean, that really could be Paul's story, if you sum it up. You know, one day I'm killing Christians, next day I'm preaching the gospel. I had nothing to do with that. 
uh, you know, Jesus knocked me down in the middle of the road trip. And he says, you know, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he goes, I want you to go to the Gentiles. I want you to turn them from darkness to light. And I want, I want to give you the message of forgiveness to them, of sins, and, and, and turn to the gospel. And that was the ministry that was given to me. One day I was doing one thing. Next, thing I'm doing, next day I'm doing something else. I can't boast in that. That ministry of preaching was given to me by the Lord. In fact, he says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16, he says, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased. When God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. In other words, so what he says there is, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, look, the Lord called me, from my, <laughs> he called me from my mother's womb. I mean, I was not doing what I was supposed to do all those years, but he'd already had his stamp on me, and he just waited to the right moment, and then boom, I'm in the ministry. You know, and just as a footnote, we have the same kind of story in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was chosen by God. Jeremiah had nothing to say about it. Jeremiah 1, 5 through 7. I'm going to straighten this out. I'm sorry, beloved. Let me, uh, there we go. Let me just read that one again. I think it's a super important one. I think that it gives Paul an insight. He says this, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. When did that happen? On the road to Damascus. That's when God was pleased to do it. Jesus comes, knocks him down, and uh, says, this is the time. And he says, listen, I'm revealing my son to you. Who am I persecuting? Me, Jesus Christ, you're persecuting, he told Paul. And so the son was revealed to Paul, so he's going to preach him among the Gentiles. And Paul says, listen, right away, I understood. This was from the Lord. I didn't have to go and ask anybody, you think this is right? I mean, you know, I'm on the way to Damascus. I'm going to kill Christians, and now I'm, I'm going to preach the gospel. Is this what I should be doing? I mean, all the believers, of course, are going to say yes. But Paul says, I didn't ask anybody. I already knew this was the issue, okay? This was clear to me. And then we have Jeremiah, see? Uh, Jeremiah, just as a footnote, I'll give you a few of them because I think you see this common thread here. Uh, Jeremiah was chosen by God. Jeremiah had nothing to say about it. Jeremiah 1, 5. It's a marvelous passage. Listen to this. Uh, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And that's with everybody, beloved. You understand that. But as he's speaking specifically to Jeremiah, he has uh, an agenda for him. And before you were born, I consecrated you, just like he has an agenda for you too, to walk with him and be pleasing to him and enjoy him forever. He says, I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. So he's talking to Jeremiah. Before you were even in the womb, I already knew you. I already had a plan for you. You were already going to do something for me. Verse 6, then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. I mean, I can't speak to anybody. I don't, I don't have the, way, the means to put words together so anybody's going to listen. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Some kind of snuggle fest, right? With Jeremiah and, and God cuddling together, just kind of, you know, hey, this is going to be really great. And, you know, snuggle up in your lap, Lord, and all that stuff. No. God had a job. He chose Jeremiah to do it. No excuses. Just like Paul on the road. Boom, down to the ground. Paul, here's what you're going to do, okay? I'm not picking you up and holding you close, okay? You got a job. I picked you out. You're going to do this for me, okay? Paul says, I'm not boasting and preaching. Why? The Lord handed that to me. Jeremiah says, all that I command you, you're going to speak. Everything I say to you, you're going to say. And that'll be a piece of cake, right, for Jeremiah. Isn't that right? That's going to work out just fine. Right, look at Jeremiah 20, verse 7. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. <laughs> you know, Lord, I mean, I had this idea that it was going to be one thing, and it wasn't. You know, of course, the Lord doesn't deceive anyone. 
But from Jeremiah's perspective, it's like, I thought it was going to be one way. It wasn't that way at all. See, you have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day long. Sounds like a real profitable ministry from men's perspective, right? He's a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Verse 8, for each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. Why? Because everything the Lord says he told him, he would say. And that's what the Lord was telling him to say. Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Every time I speak, somebody gives me a hard time. Verse 9, but if I say, I'll not remember him or speak anymore in his name. In other words, I'm just not saying anything, all right? I mean, I'm going away and I'm not talking to anybody again. I mean, I realize, you know, the word has to go out, but somebody else can bring the bad news. I'm not bringing the bad news anymore. Then he says, in my heart, I become like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many terror on every side. Denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall saying, perhaps he'll be deceived so that we can prevail against him. Maybe what he says isn't going to happen. And then we could bring an accusation against him and get rid of this guy for good. And take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. In other words, the Lord's behind me. You're not overcoming this dread champion. And we think about the, the heavyweight boxers of the world for that time period. They were the dread champion. Nobody's overcoming them. That's the idea. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Nobody's overcoming him. There's no overcoming what he wants me to do, Jeremiah says. I can say, I want to quit. And that makes no difference. Because he's not listening to that. He's not accepting my resignation. And shutting my mouth, Jeremiah says... And saying nothing was more painful than opening it up and getting criticized and ridiculed. So I just have to do it. He's a dread champion. And he goes on to say, though, that those who beat on him and criticize him, the Lord's going to take care of all those guys. But in, in the real life, here's Jeremiah doing his thing. And he can't boast of any of this. Why? Because the Lord's doing that. And he picked him and told him to do it. And Paul's saying the same thing. Hey, what do I have to say about it? Amos 7, we have the same idea. Remember the story? The Lord comes to Amos he says, I'm calling you as a preacher, and you're going to pastor a mega church, and people will be flocking to hear what you have to say, and you're going to be famous, and everybody will know your name, you'll be on TV. Is that how it went? Not exactly. Amos 1, 1, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, when he envisioned visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the day of Jeroboam, son of jo uh, Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So he's shepherding, and then boom, kind of like Paul walking down the road to Damascus, and pow, you know. I mean, here you are, kind of like Jeremiah. I mean, he's just a kid. Hey, I've called you from your mother's room. Get ready to speak. Lord, I'm just a kid. I can't put words together. It doesn't matter. I'm going to give you all the words. Just start doing it. Then Amos 3, 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God spoke. Who's resisting a lion? That's what Amos says. I mean, I had to do what he said I had to do. I mean, what choice did I have? He spoke. He gave me visions. I had to speak. I mean, that's how it was. Amos 7, 15. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, You shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Verse 17. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Your wife shall become a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover... Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Well, that sounds like a nice future prospect of ministry. You're going to lose your entire family and ugliness and, and sinfulness and just wickedness overwhelming the land. And no matter what you say, 
no matter what you preach, Amos, it isn't going to appear that anybody's even listening or that you're even making a difference at all, but it doesn't matter what you think because no matter what you say, Israel's going into captivity and they're going to die by the sword. No matter what you say, it's still going to happen. I still want you to say it because you're mine and you're going to do what I wish for you to do in your ministry. See? So, all you prospective preachers out there, okay, there you go. Don't think it's going to, you know, you're going to be famous and everybody's going to appreciate you and all that stuff. So don't have high hopes for yourself, okay, because you don't fall in very good company here. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you for in the same way they spoke of your fathers, the false prophets, Luke 6.46, okay? So if everything's good and everything's great and all people are like you and everything, listen, understand that's unlikely, all right? You have a ministry, you're going to do what the Lord wants you to do. If you've call, been called into that ministry, beloved, now I'm not talking about some of you who chose that as your profession, Okay? Your time in the ministry is going to be measured in minutes, okay? Because you're going to get in there and you realize that this is not for the faint of heart. And, and if you've got something else you can do well, you're going to go do it, okay? But if you were called into the ministry and you understand what I'm saying now, because I've given you three examples and I could give you about a half a dozen more from the Old and New Testament about people who were called into the ministry to preach and do this ministry inside the church in modern Christianity. You'll understand, listen, this is, this is, um, this is a compulsion that Paul speaks about. Uh, the calling experienced by everyone who really is called into the ministry, see. You know, and, and some of you know this without going into it, you know. I had imagined and started on a way different life for me than the ministry, okay. And the Lord just put his hand on me and just called me to the ministry and arranged all those things and just set it all up and stopped what I was doing before and put me into the ministry now. And so some of you know that story, but the bottom line is this. I think it's a common thread. The Lord had other ideas for me, has other ideas for Paul, had other ideas for Jeremiah and for Amos and for many others that we could look at, okay? This is what I want you to do, and this is what you're going to do, okay? Now let's wrap up here with a few things, a few thoughts about this. Paul has some part of his ministry that he can boast about, but it isn't his preaching, okay? And it isn't the gospel. I think we've illustrated that well enough to understand how that works, okay? Now, look at verse 17. There's a part of his ministry that he can boast about. Look at verse 17. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And this, the word this just really appears to be speaking about preaching and the gospel, okay? Um, if I do this voluntarily. These two things I just talked about. These are the things the Lord has laid on my life. These are the things that I'm supposed to do. The gospel belongs to God. And this preaching was God telling me this is what I'm going to do. These two things belong to him. So if I do this, that's the, what it's referring to. I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So uh, Paul says, if I perform this duty God called me to do with the right heart, then God will reward me for that work. And I would draw your mind back, of course, to our study of 1 Corinthians 3.14. Uh, you remember this, of course. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Remember that? We talked about all that, the judgment seat of Christ, where he's going to evaluate everything that you've laid on that foundation of Christ. And, uh, and if any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he'll receive a reward. Paul understands, as you see his comment here, listen, if I, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. Paul, Paul understands he's not exempt from evaluation. Paul understands that on this, on this foundation of Christ, he's going to have to build this ministry and do this ministry. And the Lord looks at his motivations, in part, and looks at the mindset of the worker, in part. And so Paul says, if I do this thing right, I know I'm going to be building with gold, silver, and costly stone. Just like we told you, if you do the ministry with the right mindset, if you do it with the right motivation, if you come about it in the right way, 
then as you do the ministry the way the Lord has prescribed it to be, then you're building on this foundation, gold, silver, costly stone, it'll stand the test of fire, and it'll still remain and be with you to that where you can glorify God with that forever. If you're doing it with other mindsets, you're doing it with unwillingness, with grudge, begrudgingly, or because you think you have to, or any number of other things, then there's, that's building with, with uh, straw and stubble and hay. And that's not going to stand the test of the fire. And I think as we think about everybody's building, including your pastors, that I think there's whole sections there that will be costly stone and wood and, and gold and silver. And there'll be some sections and some wings and perhaps a partition wall and here and there that are all made out of straw and they're all going to be burned up. And we might think we have this great mansion going on there. And when we get all done, we might have a, a nice structure, uh, but not as elaborate perhaps as we thought it would be. And I think that there's a combination of all that going on. But Paul says, listen, I, I don't, I'm not exempt from all of this. If I do it voluntarily, I have a reward. If he does his duty with a willing mind, in other words, it's going to meet with gracious recompense from God. There's no reward for regarding it as drudgery, Paul would say. Uh, there's no reward for doing it reluctantly, Paul would say. There's not going to be any reward there. And then he says this, look, look there. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me, Paul says, even if I don't want to do it, or if I'm doing it unwillingly or with the wrong attitude, it doesn't relieve me, he says, from the stewardship. And that's what we saw with Jeremiah and Amos as well. Even if I want to quit, he's not listening. I turn in my resignation, he's not taking it. I still have a stewardship. I'm supposed to say what he wants me to say. So whether the duty of the office is done willingly or with reluctance, whether the heart is in it or adverse to it, the office holds a trust and a charge from God for which they must be accountable. And all ministers fall into that category. But Paul says, look, this is how it is. Okinomia, a stewardship. It's where we get our word dispensation. The ordering of a household. I have a stewardship. I have an ordering to do. There's, there's some property that I'm in charge of. The administration of another's property. That's the same word we used use to describe Paul and ministers since that time in chapter 4. And we looked at that extensively, so I won't go through it again. Taking his name, professing to do his business, make men accountable to his bar. And that's how it works. So Paul says, listen, I have something to rejoice that is my own. And it isn't the gospel because that's from God. And it isn't preaching because God set me to do that task. And if I do it with the right attitude, God's going to reward me. And if I don't want to do it, I still have to do it because God hasn't released me from the responsibility of his property. I have a stewardship. So the thing he rejoices about and has the right to choose now is in verse 18. Do you understand? So Paul talks about boasting, but it's in a positive way. He says, listen, there's something, this freedom that I've chosen is me. See, this is something I've chosen to do. Look at verse 18. This is very great. It's going to wrap this whole thing up. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, it appears this reward, as Paul gets, uh, is using this word, is really synonymous with what he can rejoice in and what he's able to boast about. So what's my reward? What am I able to boast about? What's, what's the rejoicing part of my ministry that I'm in charge of? It's this, Paul says, that when I preach the gospel, I can do it free of charge. You know what? Paul could say this. Corinthian church, Paul could say, you know something? God never told me to do that. I got to choose that. That's one part of my ministry I choose, and I get excited about that privilege. That's it, you see? 
I, I don't get to boast about the gospel it belongs to God. I don't get to boast about preaching because I was given that task and I have to do it. And if I do it willingly, he'll reward me. If, I, if it's unwillingly, I still have the stewardship. He hasn't taken it away from me. He hasn't accepted my resignation from that ministry yet. And so I have something, though, that I contributed to the ministry, Paul says. And that is this. I limited my freedom and love. And I preached the gospel to you without charge. And God didn't tell me to do that. I got to do that. And I get excited about that privilege. Paul had to preach, he had to preach the gospel, but he didn't have to preach it for nothing, see? That was his special contribution. And in that, he had a special rejoice, an opportunity to rejoice about something that he said. Listen, he, I have not used my right at all. I have a right to support, I have refused it, absolutely. I've never made any use of this right, he says to the Corinthian church, for any kind of support. And Paul says, that's thrilling to me about my ministry. And the reason Paul covers all of this, listen, it's very profitable for the church and we pull very important doctrine from it about the church's responsibility. But Paul covers it is so that ultimately, listen, beloved, the Corinthians and the believers right down until the today, through the ages, will know the attitude, see, that they ought to have when they consider setting aside their own liberty. Paul uses himself as an example and says, listen, I can boast, but not about preaching and not about the gospel. That I can boast about, I can rejoice in, because that's really the attitude we have to have as we limit our freedom for others. I can rejoice because I added this, okay? The Lord didn't tell me I had to set aside this liberty. You can say this, see? And whatever it is in your life, and whatever the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, is addressing, okay? The Lord didn't say you had to do this, okay? He said you had to be a, a witness. He said you had to, you know, walk in a certain way. He gives you a list of do's and don'ts. But in this area, this area of freedom where you can limit your freedom, this is what you supply. And Paul says, I have a rejoicing area in my life that way. I can rejoice that I can set that aside out of love for my believer, other believers or out of love for those who don't know Christ. And in rejoicing, I can set it aside. This is what I add. It's what I bring to the table to further the gospel. It's what I bring to the table so that I don't tear up a path that gets to the gospel. It's what I bring to the table that keeps other believers who are not as mature from stumbling and being wounded and having a hard time and being ruined temporarily in their faith because I set this aside, see? And my attitude's not going to be then, if we're mimicking Paul, the attitude's not going to be, oh, one more thing i got to set aside, you know, because I'm around a bunch of immature believers and I can't do it. That's not Paul at all. Paul says, listen, I can rejoice in this. And here it is. As I evaluate my life, as it impacts those who are other believers and as it impacts the world around me, in rejoicing I can say, okay, I can set this aside. I can add this. This becomes part of the thing that I can say, I brought this to the table. The Lord didn't tell me I had to do it, you see? And even though it caused Paul harm, and even it was to his own detriment, and see, that's the thing, that I think, where we have a really hard time bringing some of our own freedoms to, into that same intensity. It's, not gonna, it's very unlikely it's going to cause us any harm. It's not going to cause us any, any detriment whatsoever, likely. It's just a matter of saying no. That's, it's kind of like the Corinthian church. They were going and eating meat offered to idols. They were going to festivals where it was designated to the idol and people were having a hard time with it. I mean, it wasn't like they were going to do without food. It wasn't like they were going to do without clothing or really it would be detrimental to them in some way. It was just a matter of they could set it aside and they could do it, Paul says, in joy. It could be a thing where they could just say, okay, I'm good with that. This is what I'm going to add to this. The Lord didn't tell me to do it. This is what I'm doing. And I'm doing it because I want to open up the avenue to the gospel to the unbelieving and I'm doing it because I want people who are around me to grow in their walk with the Lord and not violate their conscience. 
So even though it brought it harm, brought him harm, even though this was to his own detriment, Paul considered it something he could rejoice in doing, and that's the great example of the correct attitude. He did it with joy. That's why Paul's bringing his attention to it so the church could follow him there, see. Because it removed any hindrance to the gospel, it removes any obstacles to discipleship, and it removes the opportunity for disunity in the church, see. And that's it. That's where Paul wanted to go with this example. He's got another example in his own life. I think it'll even be more important that we see that as it kind of builds on what Paul said here because it has so much to do with our interaction with the culture around us. And we're going to start that next week, Lord willing. But let's pray together, if you would, and just ask the Holy Spirit to kind of put all this together, assimilate this for us and in a very uh, logical manner so we can act on it in our own life. Father, we thank you today for your word. So grateful uh, for it. Uh, we thank you for uh, the word of God that gives us a pattern not something we're coming up with, but that Paul just, out of his own mind, as the Holy Spirit carries him along, gives us this wonderful pattern we can follow. And, and we can understand the reason for even going into these issues, which are so contentious inside the church today. But Paul just wants to make sure that it's clear they understand where he had the right and then where he denied himself the right because he wanted to bring this in as his own contribution. He didn't contribute, uh, contribute to the gospel. He didn't contribute through his preaching. But he did through limiting his freedom. And Father, I pray that you'll help us catch the spirit of the Apostle Paul who would set aside what, what would seem to even for him to be the most basic needs, which really isn't even the issue for us, but the most basic needs, the most simple demands of life. He would set that aside, sustenance and, 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 uh, and provision for his life and generate his own sustenance and provision to his own detriment just so that he would have the most loving treatment to give to the people who were struggling. Well, that sure changes the whole dynamic for us. Help us, Father, to, to take the example of Paul, be willing to set aside things that we don't even need, most of them, freedoms we could limit for the love of others, and help us do it with rejoicing, Father, which is the key as we bring it in and use it to build on this foundation of Christ where it becomes gold and silver and costly stone. Not because we're trying to merit some kind of favor from you, not because we're trying to uh, somehow uh, put a list together so we can live by these legalistic demands. No, Father, just because we understand by your Holy Spirit, who's at work in our midst, that this particular thing, this freedom that we have, can be set aside because we know, you've made us know, that it's hindering the gospel message from us, that our witness is being impinged, or, or plus... It could be causing other believers to see it and be drawn into it to their own detriment, to see it in their conscience be wounded, to see it and be ruined or stumble in their faith because of what we allow. So, Father, be at work. We desire your Holy Spirit to make, us, uh, make your will known to us in these areas, and you are. There's no question. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.